Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12, we'll be in looking at verses 10 through 20 this morning. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Last time we were able to see Abram worshiping in the land God had promised to his descendants, though it was and would be possessed, owned by cursed peoples for hundreds of years. God had made promises to Abraham. Abram, at this time he's still Abram. God had made promises to Abram about making him a great nation, making him great, making him a blessing. But he made it clear that these blessings would come long after his death and that he would not live to see any of them in his earthly lifetime. And so what was Abram's response to promises of post-mortem exaltation? Worship. He worshipped the God who made promises to him that he would not see before death. He worshipped God in the land promised to him, but actually filled with and owned by wicked peoples. He worshipped God while he was seeking a homeland. He embraced the life of a sojourner because in the words of Hebrews, he desired a better, that is a heavenly country. And God indeed had prepared a city for him and to leave Hebrews, but to apply it and for us. But do we also desire a better, that is a heavenly country, or are we only looking for the scraps that we can get down here? Is our heart, is our treasure actually in heaven for what Christ will bring back with him? Is that what we love God and long to worship God for? Well, in today's passage, uh, Abram continues to sojourn. We're going to see his sojourning. And it's a very unusual episode. And I love this text. Abram does wrong. He causes others to do wrong. He wrongs others. And God blesses him in the midst of it. God blesses him because of what those whom Abram has wrongfully wronged innocently or at least ignorantly do to him. And Abram ends up leaving the promised land, after acting cowardly and selfishly, he leaves the promised land. I'm sorry, he leaves the promised land to go to Egypt because of physical hardship. There's a famine. He intentionally hides the truth from others because he's afraid for his own life. He disregards the safety of his wife. He assumes the worst of strangers, and it turns out unjustly, most unjustly so. And God protects him, and God blesses him in the midst of his misdeeds. And he ends up with more material wealth as a direct result of his unbelief and disobedience. A very unusual text for us this morning, but a very important one to learn a crucial lesson as Christians this morning. So let's pray for God to give us grace. Father, we pray for your grace, that we would hear your word, that we would believe your word. Father, I pray that if there are any who are straying from your word, who are embracing false teaching, oh, how you would rescue them, that you would bring them back to your word, that you would cause them to love your word alone and to turn away from every false way. We pray for your blessing indeed. And that I would preach your word truly and faithfully. Remember your covenant. Remember your blood, Lord Jesus. Bless your word to your people. I beseech thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. This is God's holy and perfect word. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. 
please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman. She was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning. I beseech thee, I pray. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the dangers of the world. The dangers of the world. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And the famine was severe in the land, to skip to the end. Severe, the word is kavod there, usually means glory, but can mean heavy. The basic meaning is heavy. It was a heavy famine. I don't know what it's like to be in a famine, do you? I have no idea. I imagine it's pretty terrible to not be able to feed yourself or your house. And Abram Abram had many flocks and many herds. And there was a place where he came from in Chaldea was exceedingly fertile. The Chaldea is down in the Mesopotamian Valley between the two rivers. And back when there were no dams to dam up those rivers, that was a lush valley. The vegetation was rich. It rarely, if ever, knew famine or drought. And like, much like the uh, Egyptian basin around the Nile, the mouth of the Nile, all of that, that wonderful vegetation that's there. In fact, when there are famines to this day, Bedouins will go into Egypt because that's where there's always still corn and food because of, again, the lush valley of the river Nile and all the moisture that it brings to the ground. And Abram had come from Chaldea, a prosperous place, and he went to Haran. And he prospered there. You only have to go back to verse 5 of our text to see how Abram prospered in Haran. Notice it. It says, when they leave Haran, in verse 5, and all they, they took all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people, the souls literally, they had acquired in Haran. So in Haran, they get more possessions. They get more souls. That means animals and servants. Abram gets wealthier in Haran. And he was wealthy in Chaldea. And now, because God has told him to go to this land that's now in a famine, he's going to lose everything. He's going to lose his flocks. He's going to lose his herds. He can't feed them. That's his wealth. And he has many servants. We're going to see that later. Many servants in his house. He has a large household that he's got to provide for. And I guarantee you this. As they're moving in this hostile land with the the Canaanites, and they can't really even stay in one place too long, because they can't make themselves a target. And then they've left this wonderful, lush, and wealthy life in this wonderful uh, areas of, of Chaldea and, and Haran. You know what his servants are saying. What is our master doing? Oh, he heard from God? And we're in this God-forsaken land with hostile people? And now a famine's coming, we're all going to die? We don't even know where we're going? What is he, nuts? Can you imagine the servants in that house? At mealtime, we're out in the field, whispering, doubting, debating, talking about how foolish their master is, conspiring, all kinds of stuff behind the scenes illegitimately. I know what that's about. Not believing, not trusting, not, not submitting to the man that God has raised up as their master. It would have been very difficult. You know, it's always hard when our expectations are frustrated, when our wishes are denied, when our hopes are dashed and they fall to the ground. It's a great temptation for the flesh to blame somebody, to blame 
God, right? And to be tempted to sin in other ways. And sin always comes, temptation to sin rather, always comes clothed in the desire to do good, right? Nobody ever sins because they want to do some pure evil thing. There's always a good reason for it. It always comes clothed that way, right? I have to take this illegitimate money for some good purpose, right? I have to bicker and slander and, and engage in secret meetings behind the scenes to second guess, you know, the pastor because it's going to be good ultimately, even though our polity disallows for it. There's always a good reason, right, to violate and to do evil. It always is that way. You're hungry. Hunger's from God. Turn these stones into bread. That wasn't a bad temptation, right? Jesus was hungry. Why wouldn't he eat? Turn these stones into bread. God made you in his image. You want to be like him? Eat from this tree. And you'll be like God. Satan wasn't tempting Eve to some horrible rebellion, right? Fulfill your purpose, Eve. Just eat from the tree. Right? Turn these stones into bread. Take that money. Tell that lie. You've got a good reason for it. For ordinary people in other situations, it's wrong. But for you, there's an exception. That's the way temptation always comes. It's always to do some good thing. Abram's temptation would be to go back to Haran. Of course it would be. Go to Chaldea. You are prosperous there. You've got your connections there. You've got your businesses there. Your father's house is still there. Go back. Re- replenish. Refresh. You're not abandoning God's word. We'll go back to this God-forsaken famine land again so you can follow the Lord. But let's go back. Be wise. Let's be smart. Let's go back to Haran. Let's, let's establish ourselves. Let's take some supplies back to this desert. But you say God has given to us. Abram doesn't do that. I think it's a singular act of faith that Abram goes down to Egypt. Egypt is not a bad place yet. We think of that because of the Exodus. For the most part in Genesis, Egypt is a good place. Calvin calls it a singular act of faith that Abram goes to Egypt and not back to Haran. He was moving south. He continues to go south. He goes because he is not going to go back. He's not going to give in to temptation, no matter how much his servants think that's the logical, common sense thing to do. He's not going to do it because he's going to do what the Word of God says. Not what fear says, not what man says, not what business says, but what the Word of God says. And the Word of God said to him, this is your land. Go and sojourn in it. Notice in our text, it's interesting, it's a very unfortunate translation in the New King James. But in verse 10, the whole verse says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. It does not say that. It's not the word to dwell. The word to dwell is to is yeshav. He settled, he dwelt. This is the word gore, lagor, to sojourn. Abram goes to Egypt to sojourn. He had no plans to stay in Egypt. He's going to go down there and sojourn because they have food in Egypt and he can't let his flocks and herds die. And this is the wisdom that God has given to him. He's not abandoning the land. He's not going back home. He's going to Egypt because they have food there. This is what you do in the midst of a famine, right? He goes to sojourn there. He is not forsaking the Lord. Think of it. Since God has called Abram, I mean, he was in his father's house. He had flocks and herds, and it was wealthy, and Herod, it was great, and Chaldea. You know, they were worshiping moon gods, but, you know, it was, it was good on this level. And since God has called him one hardship after another, leave everything that you know, everyone that you know, go to this foreign land. I don't even tell you where it is till you get there. Oh, by the way, it's filled with hostile people who are cursed of God. And now I'm going to send a famine. And yes, it is the Lord who sends the family. Where else did it come from? And you're my chosen. And I love you. You're my bearer of the promise. What is God doing? Well, he's testing Abram's faith. 
Abram passed the test in the promised land last week. What a wonderful expression of faith in the midst of the promised land, being told you're not going to own any of it. Any of my blessings are going to come to pass in your lifetime. He continues to worship God. He sojourns in a tent, but he builds altars to the Lord because his home was in heaven and he knew God already owned the land. And so he's building these altars to testify to that memorials that it's God's land right now. Whether I ever get it, who cares? The Lord is my God. I will live with him forever. And he owns the whole earth. And Abram understood that his inheritance was the whole earth. And he lived by faith. And he worshiped God in the midst of a hostile land, in the midst of Canaanites, even as we are in the midst of Canaanites. And we should worship the Lord because he owns it. All of it. No matter what laws they pass, no matter what they do, this is God's land right now. There is no taking it over. And we live by faith, and Abram lived by faith, and what an awesome thing it was. And now he has a great opportunity to show his faith again. The world is a dangerous place. God does not spare his people hardships. He does not spare them labor. He does not spare them hostile peoples. He does not spare them famine. He does not spare them Barrenness. Remember, Sarah's barren. She can't have children. What a hardship that is for so many women. Women who love the Lord whom God loves. And they are blessed no less because of that. And yet it's a hardship. And it's a burden to bear. Abram must live out his faith. He did well in Canaan. He worshipped the Lord. He built altars in a land that he had to act like he was a foreigner in. And he was. What's he going to do now in Egypt? I want you to notice, secondly, the passions of man. The passions of man. Abram has a problem. Verse 11. Abram has a beautiful wife. And it's a problem. It's a problem because he's afraid of what's going to happen to him. Because of his beautiful wife. And we see him as expressing this fact in verse 11. I know you are a woman of beautiful countenance. By the way, critics get on the text here a little bit. Sarai's 65 years old at this point in the text. So you know what the critics are going to say. Well, she can't be that pretty that he's going to be so afraid, right? Well, the critics are unbelievers. So you've got to remember that. The critics are unbelievers. Abram lives to 175. That's when he dies. His son Isaac dies at 180. His father died at 205. They're living well beyond 150. 65 is still quite a young woman. See, they don't believe that. They don't believe that the ages change. That's all myth to them. So then they throw out this part of the text too. Well, if you start with not believing the text, of course it's not going to work. The text tells us why she's still pretty at 65. Her normal lifespan would have been 200 or so. Now, she dies at 127. We don't necessarily know why. That's still quite old. She's still only about half way there. And if most people die around 70, that's 35, you know, in our way of looking at it. But, so, Sarai's a beautiful woman. Ah, the critics say, nobody can see that. This is Egypt. They cover up. There's veil on their face. You know, there's the hood thing. There's the whatever. Can't even see a woman. Why is Abram afraid? Well, this is another place where the facts of the situation actually not only refute the critics, but are, are arguing in favor of the uh, text as we understand it, that it's very ancient, that Moses wrote it with an ancient understanding of the world. Because we know from monuments and statues and all sorts of records that are discovered, and you can see them now in ancient Egypt, that women in ancient Egypt did not cover up, did not wear veils at all. Look at all the statues. Their faces are fully exposed. In fact, one of the historians said that the women of ancient Egypt enjoyed all of the conveniences of modern European women. That's how Egypt was. That's how cosmopolitan Egypt was. In fact, it wasn't until the Persians came that women would cover up. So that's millennia later. The Persians brought that tradition. So Abram and Sarah aren't even thinking of covering up because no one's ever seen that. No one's ever done that. So she's going to go like anyone else, and they're going to see her beauty, and they do. One other criticism that we should dispense with, maybe. It's only about 300 years, they say, since the Tower of Babel. 
How can Egypt be there in this great nation, in this great country? 300 years is a long time. A lot can happen in 300 years. The United States, if you go back 300 years, it's 1723. No one's even dreaming of the United States of America, right, in 1723. It's going to be 30 years before the French and Indian War, when the British are our allies. That doesn't happen for th more than 30 years after 1723. There's no frontier. There's no frontier, you know, uh, men out in the wilderness forging the way. There's no trailblazing west yet. Daniel Boone won't be born for 11 more years if this was 1723. And by the way, in a very small church in New York City on William Street, an unordained ministerial candidate is asked to become the pastor of this very small Presbyterian church. He turns it down. He's only 19. His name is Jonathan Edwards. That's 1723. Look at America now. Would you say, well, because America wasn't a country 300 years ago, it couldn't possibly be a powerful empire 300 years later. I think we've already hit our pinnacle, and we're in the decline now. We hit our pinnacle a while back. The most powerful uh, nation, way, way less than 300 years. But anyway, Abram knows his wife is beautiful, and he has a plan. He's made this plan before they even left. If you go to Genesis 20, verse 13, he, he lets us know about his plan the second time he tries it. And it came to pass, he says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house... That I said to Sarai, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So that's Abram's plan before they leave. Abram didn't just come up with this. They're going into Egypt. Abram has reason to fear that maybe they might take her, kill him. 25 years later in Sodom, the good citizens of Sodom try to break into Lot's house to, to molest two men. What are they going to do to a beautiful woman? A beautiful woman, similar people. So Abraham has reasons to fear. And we live in a place, in a world where, you know, the, the world has been saturated with, with gospel truths and basic human rights that come from the idea that all men are created equal. We're all the same, men and women. We're all fully human. No one's more human. No one's less human. We live in that world. And because of that, we don't understand how in the ancient times women were objects means to an end, servants or pleasure, and that was it, right? And Abram recognizes when he goes to these pagan places, they'll just, they might just kill him to get to her. And so there's real concern here. This isn't just nonsense. However, Abram's fear is not for Sarai. Let's just make that clear. And his fear is not, and I've read the commentaries, oh, Abram so believed the promise of God that through him would come the promised seed that he knew he had to protect his life no matter what. And it was his great faith in the promise of God that led him to the... And now, the technical rebuttal for that argument is hogwash. That's not it at all. We invent inferences and possible implications of the text when the text tells us the reason why he did what he did. Verse 12, therefore it will happen. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is, my, this is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will literally cause you to live. Oh, they will preserve your life, not just let you live. Verse 13, please say, I like this, it has the emphatic in the Hebrew. Abram's going to Sarah with his hat in his hand. He's asking her something that is wicked, and he knows it. He has no right to ask her this. She has every right. In fact, I would even say the duty to decline. No husband can ask his wife to lie or hide the truth and expect her to do it if she loves the Lord. If she loves the Lord, she's going to say no. Get behind me, Satan, because that's what he's actually doing. But Sarah's sin is much less than Abram's. She goes along with it. Abram's the one who planted it, did it, is leading her into it. So he has many more aggravations. And he does it again for himself. Notice again verse 13. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me. Not that the promise may come to pass. Not that you may be okay. That it may be well with me. And he even says it on account of you, because of you, for your sake. And then he says it again. And that I may live on account of you, because of you, for your sake. You're too pretty. So we've got to do this. 
And Sarah goes along with it, unfortunately. So he's led Sarah now into dissembling their marriage. All the commentators agree that Abram is in the wrong. Once you get past the ancient ones who always defend the saints no matter what, they, there's always a reason why what they do what they do. And I understand the mindset there, but we really need it. The Protestant reformers were great at this. They called out the sins of the saints because they aren't special super Christians. They sin too. And that's something we need to know. Abram sins dreadfully here. Jameson Fawcett Brown, the uh, solid evangelical conservative commentary at the end of the um, 1800s, Quote, Abram's counsel was a deception, intended to give an impression that she was no more than his sister. Because that's what everybody's going to think. He sins and he tempts Sarai to sin, end quote. Calvin says this, quote, he sinfully betrays the modesty of his wife. When he dissembles the fact that she was his wife, in other, in other words, dissembles to, to cover up under a false appearance. If he says she's his sister, everyone's going to not or think that she's not his wife, right? Just as you think, oh, she's my sister, she can't be my mother too, right? She's his sister, she can't be his wife. And that's what he wants everyone to think. Calvin says, when he dissembles the fact that she was his wife, he deprives her chastity of its legitimate defense. Anybody can take her now as a woman to be their wife. And not realize they've done something wrong, especially in that day when, especially when ancient pagan kings in the east would take a woman from a house and the father could say nothing and the mother could say nothing and the siblings could say nothing. If it was his divine right by prerogative to add her to his harem, even the Romans hated the east for their luxury because of that. The Romans did away with that, uh, multiple wives. But to go on, Matthew Henry. Dissembling his relation to Sarai, he equivocates concerning it. Listen to this. Teaching his wife and all his servants to do so also. Not only is he tempting Sarah to sin, causing her to sin, all the servants now have to pretend like Abram and Sarai are not married. Oh yeah, they're brother and sister. Oh yeah, this is the brother quarter. This is... They all have to pretend like it now. They all have to go along with it. How many people is he causing to sin because of his fear? Matthew Henry noticed that all these servants to do so. What he said was, in a sense, true. We do know that they have the same father. They're half-siblings. By the way, Abram doesn't say that, though, does he? Tell people you're my half-sister. Because then that would leave open the possibility that you could be married. Because at that time, the population being less, that was still uh, a, a range of acceptability. And we've looked at that in the earlier chapters of Genesis. I'm not going to go back into that. That was in a sense true, but with a purpose to deceive. Why is he saying, tell people you're my sister, so they won't think you're my wife? Which is the true situation that you want to hide. You want them to believe something false. With a purpose to deceive, he so concealed a further truth as an effect to deny it, Matthew Henry says, and to expose thereby, listen to this, both his wife and the Egyptians to sin. Not only his wife, not only his servants, but the Egyptians now are going to be tempted to sin. And it happened. They start giving Abram all this wealth because they think Sarah is single and they're purchasing her dowry, which is what you would do. And that's wrong. And, of course, Pharaoh himself could commit adultery with her. And that's wrong. Abram's doing all of this. And yes, we say... There's some truth in it. There's some truth in what he said. Yeah. The best liars know that the best way to lie is to put a little bit of truth in it. That's how false teachers and heretics have their audience, right? Well, some of the things they say are true. Well, sure. Nobody can say everything false. Satan doesn't even do that. There's got to be some truth in what you say. And what happens is, people begin to read these false teachers, their guards down, they become enamored with them, they become loyal to them, and they defend them, and they lead others astray. And Abram is the source of leading people astray, the man of God, the father of the faithful. When he introduces Sarai as his sister, he knows immediately they're going to think she's not his wife, which is a lie. She is his wife. And that's what Abram is counting on. 
And it looks like his plan is prudent. Look at it in verse 14. So it was when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. Just like he knew they would. Ah, but then something happens that Abram did not intend. Verse 15, the princes of Pharaoh also saw Sarai. Uh-oh, he wasn't thinking about that. He was thinking about himself. I don't want to die. We'll live if we do this. We'll just make our way through. But because he was thinking about himself and his passions for his own selfishness and cowardice, the Egyptian princes are the same way. They're thinking of themselves and their own passions. And they're obsequious flatterers to great Pharaoh. So they want to get on Pharaoh's side. What's the easiest way to get on Pharaoh's side? Point out all the beautiful women that come into Egypt so he can put them in his harem. And since you found her for him, you become, you know, the number one guy. He's going to give your little section its lower tax rate or something for a while. And so that's what the princes of Pharaoh do. They let him know. They want to be the first ones to let him know so they can get the reward for bringing the latest beautiful girl into the harem of Pharaoh. And in verse 15, do not make a mistake. The woman was taken to Pharaoh's house as a wife. As a wife. Verse 19 makes it clear. It doesn't say this in the New King James again, unfortunately. Where where, uh, Pharaoh says, why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as a wife. That's not what it says. It says, and I took, literally in the Hebrew, and I took her to me for a wife. I took her for a wife. She's added to the harem. Now, he doesn't consummate the marriage yet. There's probably going to be a ceremony before that happens. Thank God. God protected Sarai. But the new King, or I'm sorry, the New American Standard, the ESV, even the old NIV says, so that I took her for a wife. That's accurate. He did take her for a wife. That's why she went into his house. There's no holding place for the ancient kings that the women are theirs, but not wives. She is to be his wife. She is his wife. And he took her already. All right. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Abram has fallen into the snare because he feared man and he did not trust in God. And so I want you to notice, thirdly, the faithfulness of God. I want you to notice the faithfulness of God. Abram's wife is now part of Pharaoh's harem. And Abram's getting rich because Pharaoh is paying this huge dowry to Abram. And it says, it, literally, it's, it says he treated Abram well for her sake, and it was to him. It just doesn't say he had. I'm very disappointed with the New King James in several of these verses. And it was to him. Again, the New American Standard says, and he gave him. Pharaoh gave him male donkeys, female donkeys, camels, sheep, oxen, male servants, female servants. Pharaoh is giving Abram all kinds of wealth. And again, that's because... That's the tradition. He, has, he is purchasing this man's sister because that's what he said. And so Abram has deceived the Egyptians and he's getting wealthy by deception. But let's look at it from another angle. The church in the world, Abram being the church, Egypt being the world, are in harmony here. They're at peace. The world has what it wants. The church is prospering and even being blessed by the world. Why, they're one, right? We finally got back to the Tower of Babel, and that's the goal, right? We're all going to get along. We're all in church. We want to be Tower of Babel again. That's the supreme hope of, of much of the church, unfortunately, the progressive church. Yeah, everything's great. It, there's peace. They're satisfying each other's needs. The only problem, the only slight difficulty with it is that Sarah's virtue is about to be violated at any moment. Pharaoh is going to commit adultery, and Sarah is going to be forced to commit adultery, and Abram is getting rich off of a lie that she is something that she's not, or she's not something that she is. She's not his wife, but she is his wife. They would never be paying her these things. So all of this is happening, beloved. Proverbs 10.22, the blessings of the Lord makes one rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs are not absolutes. 
Proverbs don't speak in terms of it's always this way. Proverbs speak in terms of human wisdom. Ordinarily, in human wisdom, it's God's blessing that makes one's rich. Here, it's Abram's lie. All right? Sometimes it turns out that way. And he adds no sorrow to it. You don't think Abram is sorrowful? Not knowing what's going to happen? You don't think Sarai is sorrowful? About to be violated in this court with all these pagan women? About to become the latest? The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Usually that's the case. Not always. Proverbs 10.2. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing. But righteousness delivers from death. Abram's been delivered from death by his lie. And he is prospering a lot in his wickedness. Again, Proverbs don't promise absolutes. Only false teachers say that. You can't build an absolute promise of God on a proverb that has to do with the way wisdom usually works in this world. And if you think your works can call down God's blessing by doing a proverb, you're trusting in your works. You're a legalist. I came through this school of thought. The health gospel, the wealth gospel. They look at these proverbs about promising wealth. If you do this, promising health. If you do this, well, if you just do that, you have to have health and wealth because they're absolute promises. And these poor excuses for exegetes don't understand that you have to look at the genre of Scripture. And proverb is not didactic doctrinal teaching. It's the way of wisdom. Sometimes you have to speak to a fool, and sometimes you don't speak to a fool, except the proverb doesn't say sometimes. But you have to assume that, because that's what proverbs are. They don't speak in absolutes. They give wisdom proverbial, this is the way things usually go, but sometimes the fact of the matter is evil pays off and the wicked prosper. It happens. There's an entire psalm written about it, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, the first psalm in the third book of the psalms. One of my favorite psalms. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet nearly stumbled. My steps almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And how they're always at ease. And how everyone, you know, and the, the psalm goes on verse, for a dozen verses. And how wonderful the wicked have it. Oftentimes that is the case. Temporarily so. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes wickedness pays, and Abram is experiencing that. So up until now, we've been seeing Abram's plan in action. And on the horizontal, it's, it's been working good, other than the fact that he's about to lose his wife. But some commentators actually speculate here that maybe if God wouldn't have stepped in, Abram might never have left Egypt. He's getting rich. Sarai's going to become a princess. You know, there's worse lives than that. He can find another wife. They had, didn't have any children yet anyway. In fact, he's going to become a prince in Egypt with his sister being the Pharaoh's wife. He's, he can have multiple wives, build his own little harem. Some commentators actually speculate, would Abram have ever left if God hadn't stepped in? His life right now is a mess. He has made things a mess. There's no evidence of faith in anything he's doing. Matthew Henry says it very bluntly. The father of the faithful fell through unbelief and distrust of divine providence. Listen to this. Even after God had appeared to him twice. Our text says it. Hebrews says he appeared to him in Chaldea. Our text says he appeared to him in the land. God appeared to him twice. And Abram is faithless in Egypt. Well, he's got reasons. He's got aggravations. Scary. But he's faithless. And he, do you think you're better than Abram? Do you think you would do better than the father of the faithful? That you would have done better. Abram is faithless. I know teachers who say your faithfulness can and must fulfill the promises of God for you, for your wealth, for your health. If you're not wealthy or healthy, you don't have enough faith. Kids didn't get saved, you didn't have enough faith. You weren't faithful enough. God's made these absolute promises. He's delegated conversion of your children to you. That's absolute apostasy and falsehood. The Holy Spirit blows as he wishes. You see the sound of it. 
but you don't know where he comes or where he goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Nobody calls down that work of God. And nobody can look at someone and say, well, you're suffering, therefore you're sinning. Or you're prospering, therefore you're obeying. That's not the way life works. Any teacher who says your faithfulness can fulfill the promise of God is chaining you to hell because you're going to trust in your works and you can't be saved if you trust in your works. You know, if we could take all of our best works, our best faithfulness, and boil it down, and then boil it down again, and if you could put it in a thimble and offer it to God, your best of the best, right? Purify, concentrated goodness of your whole life. What should God give you for it? How can you purchase anything with faithfulness? How can it come any way but by God's grace? We don't deserve it. We are not any better than Abram, the father of the faithful, who is in this text again faithless. If you think you have anything to offer God or think you've done anything by which God has to do something for you, you do not know your sins or you do not know that God is utterly holy. And he cannot even look upon sin, let alone bless it and link his promise to it, your sinful obedience and faithfulness. The father of the faithful has abandoned the word of God. He had good intentions. His plan now, seven verses, 10 to 16. The plan of Abraham, here it is. Thank God. In verse 17, another plan interrupts. Abram's mess. Verse 17, some of the most treasured words in Scripture. But the Lord. Abram's going to do this, and Sarah and Abram are going to do this, and look, they're getting this. And But the Lord. God says enough. God steps in, verse 17. And he plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Boy, don't you want to know what happened here? It doesn't tell us. We don't know what God did. We know why God did it. Because of Sarai. Abram may have thrown Sarah to the wolves, but God's going to protect her. It was because of Sarai. It wasn't because of Abram. It was because of Sarai God plagued Pharaoh's house with great plagues. And we don't know what Pharaoh learned from that. We don't know if God spoke to Pharaoh in a dream like he does to Abimelech later when Abram pulls the same thing. We don't know if maybe when he's getting into bed with Sarai, Sarai finally breaks down and says, I'm a married woman. Because the only thing he says is that you're a married woman to Abram. He never says anything about plagues or about God revealing him or about God judging him. The only thing he ever says to Abram, look at it. And Pharaoh called Abram, verse 18, and said, What is this that you have done to me? Not what is God doing in plagues. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And then the third question, I might have taken her, and again, I have told, told you, uh, so that I took her to me as a wife, for a wife, which shows that it hadn't been consummated. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what God did. It doesn't matter how Pharaoh knows what we know, what we learn, what we see in the text. Is God was faithful when Abram was not. And that is your hope, Christian. That is your only hope. That God will be faithful when you are not. And even in your best faithfulness, there's plenty of unfaithfulness. I hope you know that. God was faithful. Abram was not. God saved his sinning servant. 2 Timothy 2.13 For if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I want you to go home tonight, today, and thank God that his promises do not in any way depend upon your faithfulness. Thank God. Because you wouldn't get anything but hell. Thank God that he is faithful. The Christian who hopes in his faithfulness is lost. Confess your unfaithfulness, even in your best works, and trust in Christ alone, for grace alone. And when he gives it, give him all the praise and all the honor and all the glory because you did nothing to get it. We don't earn a drop of grace. Grace is always and ever unfaithful. 
unmerited favor that we don't deserve. When are we going to learn that? This is the faithfulness of our God. Fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the grace of salvation. The grace of salvation. Trying to hurry here. The last three verses, as we've looked at briefly, where Pharaoh dresses down Abram, are just a rebuke to Abram. It's a rebuke. Pharaoh's not looking for information. He's stating questions that, by the nature of them, shame the person who is being addressed. And Abram is put to shame before this noble king. And yes, he is the one who appears noble in this text. Pharaoh is noble. Pharaoh is upright. Pharaoh is unselfish. Pharaoh honors others. Pharaoh respects marriage. Abram is a scoundrel scoundrel caught in a cowardly, deceptive scheme by which he threw his wife to the wolves. And he was made rich in the process. Calvin says this is why Abram is silent. Quote, he knew he was suffering the due punishment of his folly. He deserved to be rebuked by a pagan king. Because this is how far that he has fallen. Calvin says he just deserves this. He's acted like a worldly person. He's, he's trusted in the ways of the world. Let's come up with this worldly scheme. It's a deception. It's dissembling. It's hiding the truth. But that's how we'll be protected in the world. Do we do that? Do we ever do that? <laughs> Do you ever do that? I'm going to do this to work things out in the world. Oh, it's a lie. It's, it's selfish. It's prideful. We've got to trust in the Lord. What does Pharaoh do? The moment he learns Sarai is married. Oh, he goes and kills her husband so that he can have her, right? That's what Abraham said she would do, what he would do. No, he immediately returns her to her husband because he doesn't want to commit adultery. There's enough common grace for him to recognize that. He doesn't want to take a man's wife and marry. He even says, I might have taken her for my wife. I have taken her, really. But I could have consummated. I could have made her my wife in full. She's in my harem waiting. What were you doing? What were you thinking? He rebukes Abraham precisely because he respects marriage and he thinks adultery is evil and he doesn't want to commit it. And far from killing Abram, the last verse of our text, you might not pick it up in the English, but where it says, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. That means Pharaoh marched Abram and his wife and his servants and all that he had. By the way, he takes none of it back. He takes none of it back. That's how honorable Pharaoh is. He gave it to Abram. He's not taking it back. Abram has to take back his wife because it's his wife. He lied. But Pharaoh literally marches Abram to the border with guards so that no one can touch him, so that no one can touch his stuff. The thing he was afraid of. Pharaoh provides Egyptian guards. They take him to the border and no doubt they say, now leave. We don't let people like you in Egypt. We're a little bit more upstanding of a country than you. And he deserved that rebuke because that's the way he acted. He acted like a scoundrel, like an unbeliever. And it's the Egyptians who come off more righteous. All the commentators pick up on that. And yet, God rescues Abram. God protects Abram, saves him, sends plagues on Pharaoh, who doesn't realize he's doing anything wrong. And then at the end, he gives Abram so much more blessing. Abraham leaves Egypt much wealthier than he entered it, much like Israel will do many years later. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. Apparently not always. Apparently not an absolute. Proverbs never are. Abram ignored instruction and far from poverty and disgrace, he got rich. And God allowed him to keep that wealth in the sovereignty of God. But he who heeds reproof is honored. Abram gets reproved by Pharaoh. He's not honored. He's disgraced. He leaves Egypt with his tail between his legs. Because that proverb doesn't always come to pass either. Sometimes wisdom doesn't turn out. Sometimes sin wrinkles it. The complexities of life. Abram leaves shamed, humbled, a sinner who does not deserve grace, and God blessed him in the midst of it. Now, please, 
And I want to wrap this up soon, but please don't leave saying, you know, I heard Pastor Heifel preach a sermon on how Abram just continued to sin and God blessed him more and more. You know what I'm going to do? Sometimes God does rescue us in the midst of our sins and blesses us in spite of our sin. In fact, I can say this. There's never been a time when you haven't been blessed in any degree in spite of your sin because you're always a sinner. Right? Always. So that's always the case. And yet Abram does not presumptuously, does not plan to go down to Egypt to tell this lie, to get rich. This all happened because he foolishly trusted in himself and in his own deception to try to protect himself. And it led to a mess. But that's a big difference than presuming upon God that if I sin, God's going to bless me. That is not what Abram did. It turns out that that's what God did. And maybe God might do that to you, but I wouldn't count on it. And I wouldn't put God to the test. I would not. I can tell you this. Many times in my life, God has blessed me in spite of my sin. And all I can do is put up my hands and say, Why me, O Lord? Who am I that you should do anything for me when I continually rebel against you? Beloved, Abram left truly humble. Think how he was humbled before Sarai, his wife. How could she look at him in the face again? He suffered her to go to Pharaoh's harem. And it was Pharaoh that rescued her. Think of that. Think of how his servants would look at him. What the heck was our master doing in Egypt? What was that about? As they're escorting them out of the city. Get out of here. You're too much of a scoundrel for Egypt. Think of how he is lowered in the eyes of his servants and in the eyes of his wife. He's truly humbled. But I'll tell you what. God blessed him in spite of his sin. And it's a lesson that Abram had to learn and that we have to learn. Beloved, we do not keep ourselves. God keeps you in spite of yourself. And God is faithful when we, and we always are to some degree, are faithless. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for unmerited grace. Lord, we cry out to you. We are not worthy of the least of your mercies, and yet you shower us with mercies every day and blessings and honor. And one thing goes wrong, and we cry out, Where is God? Oh, God, help us to humble ourselves before you, to even just begin to weigh our unworthiness, that we would treasure the mercies and the graces that you Renew to us every morning more than we could count. And most of all, we have the promise and the blessing of eternal life, salvation, righteousness, forgiveness of sins. We have that promise and that reality right now. And when we die, we will be with you. And so, Father, help us to believe and to live humble, obedient lives, fearing you and not men. In Jesus' name, amen.